if you are designing your category correctly, there will inevitably be competition because there is no category of one. But what happens when that competition starts flooding into your space? That is what we talk about today with Brian Schiff. Welcome to the Category Thinkers Podcast. And while other category design content focuses on success cases, we're different. We focus on the messy middle, people in the throes of category design. And in today's conversation, we're tackling a different topic. AI has created a massive shift in context, and with that comes massive opportunities for category designers. But it also means a flood of competition into the same space. Brian Schiff had capitalized on this shift, focusing on leveraging AI to take customer support from a cost center to a profit center, and is now using category design to avoid commoditization and fend off lookalikes that are showing up in his space. He talks to our co-founders, John Ruggi from Flag and Frontier, and Mike Damphouse, aka Damp, from Category Design Advisors, about how he is using the company point of view to stay differentiated in a wave of competition why he wrote his original POV in pencil and what he did to make it permanent ink and how he balances long-term strategy investments with short-term action to stay profitable in software. And if you want to make sure that your trade show program is profitable this year, I suggest you check out one of our sponsors, my company, BeTheStage.Live. Because we've noticed companies spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to show up at events for the sole purpose of creating awareness and driving leads. But when your booth is one out of hundreds, prize wheels and merch just make you blend in with everyone else. Attendees feel this because they're trying to avoid eye contact with you while trying to figure out if their kid is going to like your giveaway, which makes your presence at the show a misfire and the follow-up messages as generic as that branded thermos. BeTheStage.Live turns you into the talk of the trade show. We convert your booth into a live podcast studio where attendees are invited to share their expertise. The lights, cameras, and action make the onlooker stop in their tracks and get pulled in. Then we package up the content into something they can reshare while the event is still going, amplifying your on-site presence and creating a digital word-of-mouth engine. After the event, you're the one follow-up they're actually looking forward to. You want help with that? Check us out at bethestage.live at categorydesignadvisors.com. They host these free weekly strategy sessions they call office hours, where any team that needs some help with category, whether it's trying to work out your POV with them, get some advice on how to align your team around category, just get a better understanding of where to get started, you can go to categorydesignadvisors.com book their office hours, and hop on a call with Damp and John themselves. And finally, what we really like for you to do is to stop listening to the conversation and be a part of it. And you can do that by joining our free Slack community at CategoryThinkers.com. There, you're going to find over 600 other category curious, category capable, category designers, just like you, working out their POVs, sharing content, and helping each other succeed. Like, for example, one of our new members, Dylan, has taken up a habit of asking the rookie question of the day. And you'll see 10, 15 answers for it, and he's really starting to speed up his rate of understanding of category design. 
So stop just listening to these shows and join the conversation. Go to CategoryThinkers.com, join the free Slack community, and start engaging with us. And now, I leave you with a very different conversation about category design with Brian Schiff and John Ruggie kicking us off. Enjoy. All right. So Brian, I wanted to start by asking you about a recent LinkedIn post of yours that I uh, came across because I think it'll provide some good context for like what you're building and how you're thinking about your business. Um, you talked about how in the context of AI is transitioning from this like cost savings efficiency driver to um, something that's driving revenue and actually like moving, like getting closer to, to pure business objectives. Um, so I haven't even asked you to describe like what you do. This is a change that you were seeing in the market. And I thought maybe if you could tell us a little bit about that and then um, use that to maybe segue about the business and where you guys are trying to head. Yeah, awesome. Uh, happy to start there and and excited to be on the show. What's the old uh, the radio saying? Like first time, long time, long time. Long, long time listener, first time caller. Uh, so yeah, excited to be here. Um, there's been this phenomenon around, right? People have understood customer service to be like a cost center, right? It's not a, it's not a growth area inside the business. It's a necessary evil that every business needs to deal with. And and the people inside of that industry have been for, you know, you can go back in the archives, 10, 15 years, talk about ways to transition customer service from a cost center into a profit center, from a cost center into a growth driver. And none of it has really stuck. It's always been sort of a great vision without the artillery to get there. Um, and AI and AI automating customer service conversations has sort of been bouncing around as a concept in the space for a similarly long time. And the people that were championing, championing AI and the people that were championing cost-centered, profit-centered were always on opposite sides of the aisle and like at odds with each other. Uh, and, and I think that that's going to end up being ironic because AI is going to be the thing that becomes the artillery that does transition customer service from a cost center into a profit center. Um, really, when you kind of like go into, right, everybody's had a bad customer service experience, right? We've all called an airlines or a utility company or, or whatever it is. And we've sat on hold forever. We've talked to one of those robots bot, like IVR system or chatbots that isn't able to do anything for us. And it's like, here you had a task on your to-do list that you wanted to get done Saturday morning before you went back to hanging out with your kids and it ends up nuking your entire day. Like everybody has had that experience. And when you start to drill into it and you just sort of do like the five whys exercise and it's like, how is it possible that this has been this way for so long? The very simple root cause explanation that you land on is a supply demand imbalance. There's too much volume volume, there's too many calls, too many chats, too much everything coming in for too many agents on the other side. And if the solution was as simple as let's just increase the number of agents and then all is well and good, which way would solve the supply demand problem, that would have happened a long time ago. Problem is customer service is a cost center. Nobody wants to increase their cost that much. It's not viable to, to the business to do that. So we've always saw AI. Um, so we specifically do voice AI for retail, uh, retail e-commerce and transportation brands. So there's a channel focus on voice and the phone and then a verticalization layer as well. Um, and we've always thought that 
AI was capable of solving that supply demand problem. If you've got two X, right? If, if you've got half as many agents as you need to deal with the volume and you're able to automate that half, then suddenly your supply demand is, is taken care of and it's balanced and you'll have, um, you know, you'll have quick response times. People will solve their problems quickly. The, the driving growth piece is a whole new layer that comes from understanding the things that customers are reaching out about. And as the AI that is automating all of these conversations, we have access to all of this data. So we're automating over 2 million calls a week right now uh, for over 200 customers. And we have this data on what everybody's calling about. And then all you need to do is connect the dots between, hey, if somebody's calling to make a purchase, then there's a revenue opportunity. If somebody's calling to uh, cancel their subscription, then there's a retention opportunity. Uh, if somebody's calling about something that one of your marketing uh, assets solves for, it's a marketing opportunity. So I think it's this, this sort of realization around the things that people are calling about tie very naturally one-to-one -one into metrics that matter. It's just when you're running a massive call center, you can't train to that level where you're able to train and integrate and do all of those things to drive those outcomes, all of which is really easy with an AI. So yeah. really well, long way of... Uh, of getting there, but that's sort of sort of what we're seeing inside the market right now. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, one of the things we like to unpack in these types of conversations on the show is what uh, we call changes in context. So, like things that have happened in the world that um, maybe they created new problems, or sometimes they allow old problems to be solved in different ways. And you just hit on one, you know, right away. Um, not the first person who's talked about AI on the show, or uh, you know, any podcast for that matter. Um, but you have this very specific channel focus and vertical focus, like you mentioned, and um, you're starting to discover how AI can help like improve that old school, you know, age old efficiency problem, but then also like repurpose that into really kind of changing the definition of like, of what CS is, customer support is and transitioning from a cost center to a revenue center. Are you um, like where when you're having conversations with people today, kind of where are you on that spectrum? Are you like, are you painting that vision of that revenue future yet? Or is this something that maybe is to come that you're trying to to build out? Yeah, it it is. Uh, we actually had a, a uh, like our 2024 product kickoff just this past week uh, with all of our customers, close to our sessions, some of our closest partners. And it was all right. It was our sort of, stake in the in the ground of planting the flag and saying um automation in order to like solve customer experience metrics and automation and, and cost saving metrics is really a solved problem uh, at least for our customers and the market that we're going after and the next step of the journey is this uh driving growth outcomes so uh, it, we're at the start of that journey but it is Right. It's sort of one of those, um, it's a long journey to the start there, uh, but it is where we're at. The other thing I was going to say kind of on, on the AI and, and the context, right, changing context, obviously AI is a changing con context for like, you know, almost everybody, uh, but huge swaths of startup land, of tech, of the economy. Um, and I love the formula that you guys use around right? Context plus missing plus innovation. And, and in a lot of ways, the, the context switch around AI is enabling the category to solve the supply and demand problem. 
right now, good AI is way easier than it's ever been. And you can automate the easy conversations and voila. Um, but the missing that we see in a lot of this is around how the AI is being brought to market and how challenging it is for the buyer to purchase, to implement, and to actually achieve those outcomes. Um, and sort of the classic model has always been, we're going to apply, uh, we're going to supply some tooling and a professional services layer if you want to tap into it. And like, here's a blank canvas, go and build your solution. Uh, but, you know, like building a great AI experience is, is really hard. Uh, so the missing for us that we've really like honed in on is, right, the technology is there, right? All you got to do is talk to chat GPT, ask it a couple of things, push it to a level you don't think it can go, watch it go there, and then say, okay, like this can obviously automate a lot of customer support. So why is there 1% market adoption on, you know, end of January, start of February, 2024? And it's the missing. And the missing is the way in which this technology is being brought to market and it is creating a huge amount of effort and expense and risk that's being pushed from the platform, right, from the vendors onto the buyers, which they're not ready to take on right now because this is still brand new technology. There's still plenty of skepticism. There's expertise that they don't have inside the building. So by, by channel focusing and vertical focusing, we're able to build all that stuff natively into the platform and make it a, um, right, make it something that, easy, free to implement, performance-based pricing model, right? And this is where sort of the, the business model factors into the category strategy. Um, but remove those risk barriers, remove the level of effort and make it really easy to have a great product out the other side. So, and then, right, so that then becomes the innovation, right? Like the, the product, right? If you look at the classic sort of AI product interface right now, ours looks dramatically different. And it is because we have sort of circled that missing and drawn our walls and then built to solve that sort of second layer, uh, like vendor almost go to market problem. Yeah, it's really interesting because the way you describe it, I had this conversation uh, maybe a year ago when ChatGPT started getting all the fanfare. And um, somebody said, oh, yeah, it's an, this new category of chat. GP. I go, it's not a new category. This is like electricity, right? You look at the Industrial Revolution. There were gas-powered motors, right, going on and people adopting them all over in factories and whatnot. And then there was light bulbs and power for light bulbs. And it wasn't until entrepreneurs started coming up with unique ideas like, oh, we could use electricity to power a motor. We could use electricity to power um, relays that would then be a computer, which then turned into IBM and Tom Watson. And so, you know, AI is the, the electricity of our day. And it, the fact that people are finding new ways to implement it every day blows my mind. And, uh, you know, and, and John and I, we probably talked to, <clears throat> I don't know, last year, John, what do you think? We we did all so many calls together. At least 100. Oh, at least 100 entrepreneurs. And I'll bet 80 of them are playing with AI right now. And the ones that aren't probably won't be there next year. I mean, we're even playing with AI in our industry and, and we do consulting. 
you know, I mean, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's a fairly powerful change in our context everywhere. And I think we're going to see thousands and thousands of new categories emerge. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And it's a, you know, you can read about and and hear stories about like the wave and like how things change and, you know, all these different sort of uh, sayings around a startup journey and, and technology and whatever. And like, for me, I'm a first time founder, started the business in college. This is really like the, the first exposure to anything. And it is a, we're operating in a different market right now than we were 12 months ago. And to see such a like strong and obvious context switch in that way. And to, you know, like AI was, it wasn't nothing before ChatGPT, but it went from like little waves that were rolling up on shore that were like nice for a, a 12 year old to body surf to now it's like, you know, a tsunami. Um, so it's, it's a fun time to be, it's a fun time to be building an AI and it's a fun time to be thinking about categories in AI too, because everybody's talking about AI. So you can't just, you know, slap AI on it and say, okay, great. Like I've got my category strategy. Yeah. <laughs> there's 10,000 companies that are doing the exact same thing. So yeah. it rechallenges all of those kind of assumptions that in a lot of ways resets the deck. Uh, I've even been saying in, to people that I've been talking to, like in so many ways, everything up until Jan 1, 2024 was like the practice and like the pregame and and the lights are on now and and the clock starts now so you you um you kind of hit on something that i was hoping to ask you about everything you described like broad strokes makes total sense right we have ai why don't we use it to turn customer support into a revenue driver awesome so what i'm curious about is you you said you kind of alluded to like thousands of companies maybe doing something similar. And I know you're exaggerating a little bit, but I would imagine it would be very easy for just any given competitor to, to like open up their website editor while they're listening to this episode and just type in XYZ companies uses AI to turn to drive revenue from customer support. And yeah. there we go. Like now all of a sudden, yeah. like someone's got this uh, similar message. Now maybe they can't substantiate it and maybe it is just like lipstick on a pig, but what I'm curious to hear is, A, are, are you seeing that yet? And then two, like, how do you plan to kind of elevate elevate yourself above that and show that you really own this point of view and that you have a like a differentiated point of view as, as we see this space start to grow and these ideas take hold? Yeah, totally seeing it, right? Even, you know, like, so customer service is one of the most obvious enterprise use cases of AI. I think that, you know, right, at least when you're thinking about sort of like conversation, chat, uh, like natural language based AI applications in the enterprise, it is one of the most obvious ones that hits you over the head. So it was a space that, right, again, there were small waves rushing ashore. We raised money before ChatGPT. Some of our, right, some of the other companies building the space 
raise money before ChatGPT. So it wasn't a zero to a hundred shift, but it was a sort of raise to the you know tenth power uh, event. And you've certainly seen that in in the amount of vendors that are in the space. And we've done sort of significant um, self-exploration around what that means for our messaging and, and our strategy. And and it's something that you guys have talked about too, around like, like specificity is your friend and knowing what you're not is, is your friend and, and sort of like you can you can separate yourself just as easily by by having something that somebody else doesn't versus not doing something that somebody else does do. Uh, right. So it's almost like by inclusion or by exclusion. And and for us, we really draw our lines around, right? We're not going to be everything for everybody. Right. We're not going to operate across all channels, right? Live chat, email, social, uh, SMS, uh, phone. Like we're not gonna be everything to everybody. We're not gonna serve every type of business. We're gonna have the channel focus and the verticalization focus, and then we can very concretely concretely tie that into outcomes that matter, right? So I always think that a a rational buying process happens on the dimensions of uh, perceived and potential impact, level of effort and cost, and degree of certainty that you will get there. Um, and everybody in AI can say whatever they want, right? Lipstick on a pig or not. Everybody can say AI can automate 50% of your support conversations, right? So in a lot of ways, it's, it's tough to, you're going to get into some weird sort of like feature war and like a technology verbiage war if you're trying to compete on that first pillar. But we think that the missing in the category is all around the second one, right? We think that the missing is all around um, like the level of effort and, and what the actual, right? How do I make this journey into this category and get a vendor that's actually going to be usable by my team, right? I run a customer service team. I've got, you know, a hundred reps overseas and I've got two people that work for me that manage my technology and my operations and my Q&A and everything and my vendors. And it's like, who's going to go and right, learn AI and build this thing and do all the integrations and whatever. Like, that's not a realistic uh, method of, of doing this for our buyers. Um, so for us, it's it's really a like, let's let's double down on our walled gardens. Let's understand that everybody's gonna say what they're gonna say. Let's let the specificity be our friend. And then it's the um, you know, there there's all the little things, right? It's the right, a customer reads your website, do they feel like right, are, are you speaking their language? Right. A lot of it, it's like, you know, we've had the couple years of practice, 200 customers, 2 million calls a week, we understand the buyer, right? And we understand all, all the different flavors of buyer, all the different personas that were coming in, and we're able to speak to a very narrow audience. And the specificity and, and the knowledge allows us to sort of, um, that that's sort of our sort of like cut through on it. Was, was, right. there, was there a point where you and your co-founders were thinking this through, thinking about the technology, what you could do with it, thinking about the problem you wanted to solve. And then all of a sudden you saw the new category and you couldn't unsee it. And you looked at each other and said, guys, if we don't build this, somebody will. Was there that, that moment where, you know, music and white clouds are parting ways? It It's such a great question. and. 
you guys have talked about the concept of right instead of product market fit it's like market product fit uh, and for us it was right we we pivoted two or three times before we landed on this business and and the first thing that we kind of did was we we chose a market that we were going to sell to and then we did like two or three product pivots until we got to what we were doing and the first kind of click for us was was seeing right getting familiar with customer service inside these organizations and and like we were right we started this in in 2018 and the ai thing in 2018 was alexa right now it's all chat gpt but back then it was like oprah winfrey going on talking about alexa and like holiday sales it was like you know every commercial every everything was like get alexa in your home and this that and the other uh and that was the original sort of like context switch that we saw combined with the um understanding of the customer and then it was okay if we're going to bring this technology to this customer it has to be done in this way right there's no way that we that this customer could ever buy anything any other way other than this and we were building backwards from the customer right it was what will this customer definitely one without a shadow of a doubt this person that we know that we've spent 18 months working with and living with and breathing with what will they absolutely buy what can we show up at the industry trade show and we are going to be the most talked about thing there and when you work backwards from that then right that that's all we were doing and then as we sort of got the business off the ground then we looked around and we said okay there's a much bigger world than this specific vertical segment that we're serving and how like what does the broader equation look like and only then were we able to sort of uh piece together that our right right that missing that we were solving for in this approach to the product and to the go to market was differentiated and then we kind of knew to even talk about it in that way as we went into sort of the broader market but it was very much so a like we're going to solve for this market and context switch around alexa and you build into there and then you come up for air once you have a real business and you look around and you say okay what does it look like to now go one to 10 to a hundred? And then you start to piece together everything else that's out there and where it, you it, fit. It, it's interesting because you saw, you had an, you had the innovation, you had the context shift and you kept seeing the missing evolve as you talk to your, to your market. So it, it's kind of like the, the workshops we do when we're doing category design, um, it's surprising how many times you've got a whole executive team, co-founders all sitting in a room and you would think the simple question of what problem do you solve could be answered by every one of them in, in, within five minutes, but it takes a good eight hours to, to beat it up to the point where the room, right? The room is shifting between the missing, the problem, the missing until finally everyone goes, oh yeah, that's what we do. That's what we solve for. And that's what makes a category is solving a unique problem in a differentiating way. And it can be right. Often the, the situation that emerges in that room is 
it's not that people don't think there's a problem being solved. It's that the list has 12 items on it that sort of tie together, but don't really. And it's like, it fails the elevator pitch, right? It's like 30 seconds. Like, what do you solve for? Uh, so it's this question of like, right. That's where you got to just go two or three layers deeper and say, what's the underpinning that ties all of this together. And, and then that's your simple answer. And really we yeah. got to get to simple answer. You've heard of people talk about product creep or I'm sorry, um, feature creep, yeah. just like, you know, tacking things on without a real rhyme or reason. And, um, what you kind of described hits at this idea of problem creep of, well, you know, we see this thing, but there's this other thing next to it that maybe we could solve. And that leads to some other things. And why don't we go after that too? And that looks like a nice line of business that we could add. And before you know it, like, sure, they're valid problems, but can you execute on those as a business? Maybe not. Can you convince buyers that you can solve all of those equally and better than anyone else? Probably not. And that really like waters down your efforts. And I think that you need to be clear on what is solving a problem versus checking the box on a requirement, mm-hmm. right? A lot of, right, it, in the building and right in the super early stage of building and bringing a product to market, the first thing that you're trying to do is say, right, what, what does the market need? And can I, right, the first step of the building is let's build to solve the need. And then you get two or three customers, right? <laughs> super, super the very, very beginning, you get a couple customers and it's like, okay, is the product solving the need, right? And and at that point, it's usually pretty clear, right? And like everybody knows, right? You want to try and attach the problem to a metric that you can then judge the success of the product against. And it's like, that's game number one. Mm -hmm. Then what happens is you go from a couple of customers to 50 customers or to a hundred customers. And the list of requirements that need to exist in the platform in order for it to be usable by the market it gets really long. There's integrations, there's workflows, there's security, there's all sorts of features and bells and whistles, there's reporting, there's, you know, access permissions into your platform, like all of these things that you don't think about when you've got two or three cowboys that are down to see if you can solve this problem and move this metric. So, so much of the, like those early middle innings are requirement building in order to like make your product usable by enough people. And then, and this is sort of where I think that we are right now and where all of this sort of like growth focus has come from, then it's like, okay, let's make sure that we're solving the primary metric and the primary problem really well. And then you can start to sort of line up new problems and say, okay, there's now an amount of leverage that has been accrued, right? There's, there's like, you know, you have your business, you have your customers, you have your product, you have the data and the workflows that you have access to and the integrations and everything. And then it's like, okay, then you can say kind of what from here and start to talk about additional problems. But you can't get caught in that middle area confusing requirements for the problem. And you need to make sure that that primary problem that you started out with and the metric that indicates the solving of that problem is that stay focused on that, keep that the main thing and make sure that as you go through that initial expansion, you're continuing to drive that metric for all of your customers. Well, it, it's it's the way buyers think, right? They first want to gain the trust that you can solve their problem. And then once they do, they give you the respect to let you introduce and, and basically 
implement the category flywheel, right? The concept of the momentum of your category and the momentum of the adoption, the people that have chosen you as the dominant solution, that momentum allows the flywheel concept to just all of a sudden go crazy, right? You can quarter after quarter introduce new things, solve new problems. And, and you know, and Amazon's the classic example of that, right? The, the bookstore turned into an everything store. It just took 25 years of, of you know, expansion and and it's brilliant yeah i i couldn't agree more hey brian earlier you talked about how you picked the market first and then you decided you were going to figure out how to solve problems for them i don't really i don't hear that often i mean i hear that sometimes but more often i hear somebody describe something they've built and they kind of have a problem in mind it's not like they're building it in a vacuum but um the market really isn't like as clear. Um, and so they're trying to, like Damp mentioned a moment ago, they're trying to find the market for the thing that they're building. Um, was there something that like gave you that discipline to really make that decision? Like, did you get some really, like maybe you're just a super sharp guy, but I'm, and I'm sure you are, but maybe you got some guidance from somebody or there was a book or just, I don't know, some direction from someone who kind of gave you the courage to really make that choice because it sounds good on paper but doing it it's like i don't think that's easy yeah <clears throat> so like I, we started the business in college i showed up at school and i had i probably didn't even know i wasn't even aware of the category of startups like i had never mm -hmm. even heard the term didn't know what it was how it existed and was introduced to my co-founder through a mutual friend who had started an app in high school and was sort of introduced to the whole idea of startups, became enthralled with it, hunted him down. I was like, we got to start something together, like drop that thing. Let's do something else. And we ended up going through Cornell's like startup incubator program called eLab, uh, run by a handful of absolutely, you know, like we wouldn't be here without them amazing entrepreneurs, amazing people, and they instilled the basics, right? It's like, you know, customer discovery and uh, product market fit and like, you know, sit down in a room for eight hours and put one, you've got, you know, a hundred characters to say what your problem is and go sit in that corner and don't come back until you've got it under a hundred characters and everybody in the room understands what it means. Uh, but then I think the to circle it all the way back to your question. So we did that initially. And then I think we started with the product and then you kind of go and you got to pivot because that's not working. And for us, it was, we were going into our senior year of college and we had one year until we were graduating. And we knew that we wanted to graduate and live in New York and be able to support ourselves. And it was like, okay, like last call. And it, and I think that it was the financial and time-based pressure of, right, you can do very basic math. We've got three co-founders. We need to be making X amount of money to be able to live in New York City. And we have 12 months to get some collection of businesses to pay us this amount of money every month in order to support ourselves. And that sort of time and financial pressure forced us to be really honest about what we had and what we didn't have and to work backwards from the customer and say, 
whatever we build, if it's not solving the problem of them paying us, it's not solving the problem that we're doing this for in our lives. And, you know, like we loved the journey. We loved the idea of building, but like, you know, <laughs> it had to work. You got to pay uh, the bills. Yeah. So I think it was, a, yeah. it was, a, it was a forced work back from the customer that was okay. financial time driven. It's like very, very pragmatic oriented. I heard, um, I was someone else I was talking to the other day was sharing how much they liked bootstrap startups because they said almost a, across the board, they have that same kind of, um, discipline and, and, um, pragmatism of like, Hey, we've got to find something that we can sell and frankly, like make money off of right now. And we don't have a big pile of VC money that we can, where we can try to boil the ocean or try to do all these things, too many, too many things at once. We've got to figure out a way to grow this business now. And that like is a good, great forcing function to get you to that level of clarity. Yeah. I love just kind of artificial deadlines too, right? It's like time box yourself, right? You know, you're right. Let's say it's somebody that's undergoing a career transition and they want to, they want to get a new job and they want to move into a new industry. And it's like, all right, just time box it, right? It's like, if you're going to go and you're not going to have a job for a while and whatever, anyways, inside the business, in life and everything, like just time box yourself and then be clear on if we can do this by then, then we've done what we wanted to do. And if not, then this is the alternate path and you reassess at that point. Damp, you got anything? No, unfortunately, I got an emergency text, so I totally missed the last five minute segment. <laughs> Edit that out. Well, uh, let me ask Edit, you then. You, um, I, I did make an assumption that you were bootstrapped and and it sounds like you were at least at the beginning. Um, what's your funding uh, journey been like since then? And how has that changed the way you think about the business? So we were, we were bootstrapped initially, got the business off the ground and then raised some like two or three million bucks of pre-seed money, just kind of convertible notes. And then basically just shy of two years ago now, raised a $7 million seed round. Um, That's a big seed round. Big seed round. And and yeah, and, and now, you know, everything in the world became about, uh, right, push off your funding time horizons, get lean. That was a very familiar uh, sort of bylaw for us. Um, so we've been, you know, growing really well um, and and doing so profitably for for some time, and uh, we'll see what the the funding plan has in store for twenty twenty four. But um, wait a second, you're a software company that makes a profit. What? I'm not sure I heard that correct. Who would have thunk it? Didn't think that was possible, huh? Yeah. So Brian, they actually it, it poses an interesting question. So the past year we saw some context changes that impacted the whole industry of startups, right? Which ultimately impacted, for instance, the industry we work in, right? Startups hiring us. Um, but we had Silicon Valley Bank, we had you know war and you know rattling of sabers around the world. Um, we had a stock market that started off really terrible at, at the beginning of last year and then kind of warmed up again. IPO market has had ground to a halt. Um, and now it's 2024. And, you know, being, um, you know, talking to people like you that are building companies that, you know, you, you talked about, you know, being lean and mean and, um, you know, the work of 
things like category design, strategic thinking, to me, that's a balance sheet investment. It's not a PL expense like a new brand design or a website or, you know, um, hiring people. So t- tell me a little bit from your perspective, the strategic thinking that you guys have done, whether it's with a third party with, you know, outside perspective or yourselves uh, internally, do you consider that work to almost feel as if, yeah, that, that, that was balance sheet investment activity. And that's something that shouldn't be on hold during times of uncertainty. The spectrum, if you've got 30 days to live, then it's probably not the right time to go on a two-week soul-searching and long-term oriented endeavor. And you should probably find somebody as quickly as you can that has a problem big enough that is close enough to what you can solve that they will pay you the money in order to be able to move the business forward. And you should probably look at what you can possibly cut from an expenses standpoint. So I think it's a spectrum. And I also think that, you know, like executing in the short term while building for the long term is like maybe the hardest part of a startup. And at least kind of like operationally and and even, you know, it's a huge drain on the team, right? It's like, you know, you're on customer calls all day. And then you also know that you need to be like building some rev ops infrastructure or some like, right, making these like bigger foundational investments. And it's like, when do you do that? I'd like probably do it on the nights and the weekends when you're like burnt out and not sort of preoccupied. Um, So I think that it's, it's really hard and um, it's really hard. And and there's a level of extreme circumstance where you should completely disregard it. But outside of those situations, it's like, you know, you signed up for starting a company. And if you don't know where you're going and you don't know how to talk about where you're going, then you're going to be turning your wheels really fast and not getting anywhere. And that is like what's really demoralizing. Uh, it's the old like, you know, direction over speed, but you need both kind of thing, right? You don't want to run really fast in the wrong direction because then you're not getting any closer to your goal, but you also can't move slowly in the right direction. So you got to, right? You got to have the direction and be able to move fast getting there, which is the game. And and it's what, what makes it hard. Um, so I just think, you know, like, I don't think there's any excuses around it. Right. It's like, if if the business isn't going to be here in 30 days, solve that. Uh, But as long as you're sort of on two feet, then you have to. It's almost, uh, it's almost akin to physical wellness, right? If you, if you're, if you know a heart attack is pending, then, you know, you need intervention and you need to get in there and and solve it. Um, If you think some, someday you might be, susceptible to a heart attack then treat the symptoms right nourish yourself work out um do the day-to-day stay happy look at the sun um you know wellness and business there are a lot of lot of similarities there yeah the other thing that i agree 100 the other thing just kind of around like doing these exercises and and how to approach investing in this stuff, which is sort of the second layer of your question. Um, I'd say, you know, as a leadership team, voracious learners and consumers of yourselves and and kind of whatever we find valuable that's out there. And 
a inherent bias for, you know, when you're a founder, you almost have to think you can do anything yourself. And that, so, so, so like we've sort of operated from that starting point. Um, but you can end up like, I love the uh, perspective versus, uh, what was that piece that you guys did? What is it? Perspective? Percep- perception versus perspective. Yeah. And I think that that, that really hits a lot of things on the head uh, pretty well and, and the value of outside perspective. So one way of doing that is, you know, guided exercise. The other way of doing it is like, you just need to write, write everything in pencil, not in pen. Don't say that you're committing to a POV for the lifetime of the business. Just right, time box it, right? We're going to sit down. We're going to spend 10 hours on this. We're going to land where we land. And that's what we're going to roll with for, right? We're going to test it in the market for a month. Wherever it lands after a month, we're going to roll with that for a year, right? And then things change, right? So we did that exercise uh, sort of in the period right after we closed our funding round um, and had sort of brought on the core leadership team. It was like, let's sit down and let's get real about what we're doing and let's get clear about it. And the way that we structured it was like that, right? This doesn't need to be existential. This doesn't need to be forever. Everything is in pencil. We're going to sit down. We're going to invest some time and we're going to get clear on, we're going to get clear on it. We're going to test it with customers, with people in the world. Um, and then we're going to roll with it for some period of time. And guess what? Like then the AI thing happened and ChatGPT came out and like mm-hmm. everything shifted. So it was like, you know, it was whatever we landed on then wasn't going to be what it was going to be forever anyways. Um, so yeah, I sort of try and, right, don't let it get bigger than it is. Try and do something that's simple. Make sure it resonates and reevaluate. So it's interesting. I, I, I just did the whole time box thing myself and shifted all my, a bunch of gears uh, for my for my physical health. And I've given it, I've said to myself, I'm giving it a year, right, to see if this new concept is going to work. Um, and so far, it feels awesome. Um, and you, it sounds like you do that with your business as well. Uh, you, you know, what, what do you see looking forward? Like, what is... What does January 2025 look like for you? Great question. Um, So I guess my head goes in a couple of different directions. For us, you know, we're really, our our goal, right? Founders need to be clear on what their goals are, right? Why why are they starting the business? What what are they in it for? And for us, it's always been very clear that we want to build a really big, impactful business as fast as we can. Right. That is the fastest rate of learning. That is the fastest rate of everything. That is when we love the experience the most. So, so you can then, right. And, and the beauty of being a startup is that like this stuff is all right. It's like the market says what fast is. And right. A lot of that sort of comes down from the venture community around like what is, what, where do you need to be in order to be able to raise just, and it's numerical, right. So you can measure it. Right. So it's again back to like, you know, problem, goal, amorphous thing tied to an explicit metric. Um, and and we know where we want to be. We know our our sort of what we're trying to do with this business. So we can sit there and say, okay, like we want to be growing 3X year over year. And like that's sort of the benchmark that comes down that draws the line at the 90th percentile or 95th percentile around um, early stage startups. 
And then, so I think that that's one thing, right? So then it's not me as a founder and CEO going to the team and saying, hey, like this is the number that we have to hit. And Brian came up with the number in a dark room. And like, now we all need to go work insanely hard to make it happen. But instead just saying, hey, this is what the market says is good enough. And if we all want to achieve our ambition, then that's what we're going to do. If we don't do it, then it's on us. So I'd say we're always thinking about growth and we approach it in that way. The second lens that I would look through is uh, when we were just starting, people would talk about the importance of team and the importance of culture. And when we were a couple of founders, a couple of college kids getting the business off the ground, we would like schlop it off, push it to the side and be like, you know, those are people that aren't actually doing anything. And they're not right. They're in big cozy jobs or they're the startups that are like running some surveys around campus, but like not doing anything, not building anything, not, you know, making anything happen. And that mindset is probably healthy in the zero to one step. But once you start building the team and, you know, the total percentage of company work that the founders are doing just gets smaller and smaller and smaller, everything becomes about the team. So I think for us at this point in our journey, it is uh, like I spend, you know, 30 to 40% of my time on recruiting and team. Uh, and, and I think that it is the biggest, it will be the biggest driver of outcome for us on a one-year time horizon, on a five-year time horizon. And, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we're we're clear on where we want to go from a product standpoint. We're clear on what we have from a product standpoint. We know our walls and who we're serving and what we're building. And, and it's about, you know, how well can we do, how fast and and how great of a team and company can we build in order to actually be able to achieve those outcomes? Yeah, you're totally right. When I was um, on my own startup journey, I over-indexed away from culture and towards like getting shit done and then learn, you know, from others and frankly, the hard way that if you don't start investing back in that team at a certain point, you really shooting yourself in the foot. So thank you for uh, for calling that out. Um, before we wrap today, Brian, any advice that you want to leave other startup founders and CEOs with? My classic advice is like, you know, I guess for the person that is on the outside and wants to be on the inside, but is waiting for the perfect idea, waiting for the perfect time in life, waiting, waiting, waiting. It's like, just just jump in, right? We, right. That's sort of the the big learning from our experience. It was just, we wanted to start something and we just jumped in and we knew nothing and we pivoted three times and we figured it out. Uh, So I think jumping in is good. And I think that the more evolved version of that for people that are sort of off the ground and executing is the, you know, keep that, keep that bias for action and just try and shorten all of your time horizons and, and try and when you're getting punched in the gut and the head and everything feels like it's going wrong, just try and sort of take all of it and, uh, and just keep putting left foot in front of right foot and, and executing and, and moving fast and, and enjoying it, I guess. Well, you seem like you're enjoying what you do. You always have a smile on your face whenever we talk to you. So thanks for uh, being here and sharing your, your, your thoughts and your experience with us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Brian. You know, Brian, it's funny. So this, this can be edited out, but, um, 
you just talk about jumping off a cliff. I'll just get, I'll leave you with my story of how I ended up in the world of startups. I was with um, the robotics division of Daimler Benz um, for the 80s and early 90s. And I'm flying to an Intel factory in Ireland with the, with the founder of the company, the, the original company. This guy invented the floppy disk, supposedly, Dick Morley. And I said, yeah, I've been working on this AI stuff with Lisp. I don't know how far back you go in a, the world of AI, but this was 1995. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if you guys were born then. Um, and he said to me, well, tell me about it. So I explained what it was and very rudimentary shit. Um, and I said, I got this product idea. And he says, well, just do it. And I'm, you know, I'm making big bucks as a young 30 year old VP at this, at this company, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. And he said, just jump off the cliff, man. And I said, I, but I just bought a new house. I, I get a wife and three kids. He said, how much does it take for you to survive in a year? I said, I don't know, hundred, hundred thousand dollars. And I look at my burn rate now and laugh, but he goes, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars. Just quit when we get back from Ireland. And that's how I got started. That was and time boxing in there too. You've got here. Go it was it unreal. Out. It was unreal. Yeah. That's an awesome story. And it, it's so funny. The, the the archives of all of this AI stuff. My mom was a, she had like a college internship in the like early 80s that was uh, like, you know, doing basically like, like data labeling for like the earliest research around like speech detection engines that was like funded by IBM when they were trying to, the earliest seedlings of all of their Watson stuff. Um, that goes back so far. And then like, I'm from the New York area. A lot of the like, you know, the early customer service robot were from these companies that were all they all came out of like the long island area like weirdly really? enough that's cool so i would when i was getting the business off the ground i'd like meet with people or whatever they'd be like oh you know so-and-so company like blah 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 and it was all kind of local so it's funny nice. all right well um i'm not sure where you are in the production schedule exactly but i think we've got probably three or four in the backlog so i would think probably late february or so but we'll, we'll keep you posted um brian um or other brian not you of course the um he'll he'll could be posted actually damp we're moving over to jamie's so i don't know if it's going to be jamie who reaches out to brian or yeah brian. i don't know but you'll get an email that'll have all the clips in it for promotion and you know we'll let you know when it goes live sounds good yeah. tell sean i said hi too yeah we'll do yeah all right thanks all for being right. with us brian yep see you guys later all right see me here there you go another conversation designed to help you think like a category designer please support our sponsors CategoryDesignAdvisors.com and BeTheStage.Live because they're the ones footing the bill for this thing so you can enjoy it. But more than anything, we'd love to hear from you, uh, whether it's in our community or if you could leave us a review for this podcast if you're enjoying this thing, subscribe to it, hit five stars, let us know what you think. We could really, really use that. And don't forget, stop just listening to this thing. Join the conversation by going to CategoryThinkers.com joining the free Slack community and come meet the other 500 plus category designers just like you. See you in there.